If you have a Bible, turn to Luke 23. I have a message prepared, but the Lord's just impressed upon my heart to share a couple things tonight. There were two men, one on either side. There was a crowd that was looking on. There were religious leaders who were corrupt, who were yelling and cheering and mocking. And there were soldiers who were laughing. The people that were at the cross, the people that were watching, were representative of all of mankind. The crowd, the Bible says, was just looking on. You would think with a crowd that big at a busy intersection right outside the gates of Jerusalem that, that there would be a lot of fanfare and a lot of fervor and that there, were, there would be a lot of conversation. But the text suggests that they were just looking. Passively watching. Maybe some in shock. Maybe some happy. Maybe some not knowing what to feel, but certainly indifferent. Nobody was calling out, stop this. Don't, don't do this. This is unjust. Nobody said that. And then you had the religious leaders who were corrupt, who had changed the Bible, who, who were out for themselves doing their own thing. And they were laughing and cheering. And finally they had gotten the, the result that they wanted. They wanted him dead because they were jealous, because he had exposed their hypocrisy. Then you had the soldiers. And they didn't care. They were Romans. It mattered nothing to them. This was just another person, another execution for them. And then you had the two thieves. And I'd like to take just a couple minutes tonight to focus on the two thieves because they really represent the choice that we have tonight. The choice that we have with our lives. What do we do with Jesus? Is he who he says he was? Is he real? Was he really the son of God? Did he really come to die for our sins? All the things we've talked about tonight and all the things we've praised him for and all the things we've testified about, are those real or are we just a joke? Is he a fraud? Does he have as much credibility as the chair you're sitting in? Who is he really? And what do we do with him? Because this evening is about him. We're not at some other celebration tonight talking about some other ancient prophet. We're not debating the merits of some other great religious leader's death and whether it provides atonement for our sin and payment for our sin and whether it delivers us forever. We're not debating that. We're talking about Jesus tonight. So what do we do with him? I want you to look at a couple verses tonight and then we'll just take a few minutes and look at these thieves and we'll pray. Luke chapter 23, start in verse 33. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the left and the other on the right. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by looking on. And even the rulers were sneering at him saying, he saved others, let him save himself if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, then save yourself. Now there was also inscription above him, this is the king of Jews. That was a mocking. One of the criminals, verse 39, who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him, said, do you not even fear God, 
since you're under the same sentence of condemnation, or we indeed are suffering justly for we're receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man's done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, today I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. One on either side. One embodying the attitude of mankind for all of history. Not accepting guilt, even when guilt is obvious. Not owning up to the responsibility of who we are. The condemnation that's on our lives because of sin. No, there's, there's a sense of entitlement. Hey, come on, now save me. Get me down from this cross. You think you're so bad? Get me down. A complete lack of personal responsibility, a complete lack of self-awareness, a defiance, a bitterness, a feeling that life has not been fair and life has not treated him properly. The religious leaders making up charges when one wouldn't stick, they'd make up another one. They just wanted to do anything they could. And they would mock Jesus for what he had come to do to save people. Imagine that to be that blind to say, Ah, uh, you tried to save people. How dare you? Isn't that what man needs tonight? Isn't that the answer for the world tonight? That, that we need some kind of solution? Because we're certainly not doing well on our own, are we? And yet the mocking is about, well, we can't believe that God would do such a thing. And the attitude seems to be, God shouldn't interfere with my life. I'm fine on my own. If Jesus is really the Savior and the Lord, then he should have done what we wanted. He should have got rid of the lousy Romans. Or, Jesus, if you're really God, you should have got me down from this cross, even though I deserve to be here, but I'm not going to tell you that. So we see in the first thief a picture of the defiance of man. And then we see the second thief. No name. History doesn't record who he is. But we'll see him in heaven. And he rebukes the first thief and challenges him for not having the fear of God. You know, fearing God and being in humble awe of who God is is the first step to, to really acknowledging our sin and rebellion. Because if there's no accountability tonight, if, if there's nobody we have to answer to, if there's not a creator and a Lord of our lives that, that we're responsible to, that, then why bother? We can live however we want. We can do whatever we want. But when we recognize that God really is and that God really is somebody we're responsible to, then that changes everything. And the thief says, are you not in fear of that? Do you, do you not, are you not concerned about that? And, and by the way, we're both guilty. We've been convicted. We've been in jail for a while awaiting this day. We got sentenced. We got caught. And just because you don't want to be here doesn't mean you can ignore the fact that you're guilty. So you need to admit it. And then he also says, look at it. We deserve this. We deserve to be here. It's not like we're here unjustly. We have to acknowledge in our lives the consequences of sin. We have to acknowledge the fact that it's on us because the, the lie that the devil tells, that God's just going to look the other way, that it's not a big deal, that just do enough, God will accept you. Of course, he won't accept the people that are real sinners. We can't justify that in our heads. But, but, but he'll accept you because you're not that guilty. And the devil's lies are, you're, you're really not guilty. And even if you were, you don't deserve to be held accountable for it. But the thief gets it. He says, no, we're guilty. We deserve this. 
But this man, he's done nothing wrong. Pilate, the Jewish ruler, said, I find no fault in him. Herod, excuse me, Pilate, the Roman ruler. Herod, the Jewish ruler, said, I find no fault in him. Now the thief, who was a criminal, who was guilty, says, I can't find any fault in him. And knowing that Jesus was not guilty, knowing that Jesus was not stained by sin, knowing that Jesus was not deserving of judgment and penalty, he says, well, then he must be the Savior, because why else would he be here? Why else would this man hang on a cross? He's not complaining. He's not fighting them. He's not yelling, this is unjust. He's not saying, what are you doing? Come on, people, help me. I I don't deserve to be here. He didn't say a word. The only words he says in the text are, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They have no idea what's happening right now. And then Jesus is quiet. And the thief looks at him and says, there's only one reason why he's here. And that's to save us. There's no other explanation. There's no other reason why this man is on the cross because he's done nothing wrong. So he says between the lines, this must be the Savior. This must be the spotless sacrificial lamb that they had prophesied about, that that they told us was coming. See, in this moment, he understands exactly what's going on. And look at what happens in verse 40 and how he responds to this. Amazing to see his presence of mind in that moment. He's being crucified The pain was so unbelievable and so unusual that they had to create a word for it, excruciating of the cross, because there was no other way to explain just how painful it was to be crucified. And here he is in agony, and he's on the verge of death, and the world is shutting down, and his brain is starting to close in, and there's darkness settling into his soul, and it would have been so easy for him to be bitter and and unhappy and and sad and maybe to curse God in his anger. Lord, why did you allow this? Instead, he's evaluating his life. And he says, no, no, you're wrong. I'm guilty. I deserve to die. And notice his courage. Even as the whole group is mocking and criticizing and jeering, he says, no, Jesus is innocent. The disciples weren't declaring that. They weren't standing at the foot of the cross going, he's innocent. But the thief was. And I want you to see, look at verse 41 for a minute, his lack of self-pity. Not feeling sorry for himself, not blaming others like society tells us to do. It's always somebody else's fault. He could have said, well, I didn't have a good upbringing and and we were poor like most people were and and that's why I stole. I was trying to help my family. Or he might have said, well, look at the state of society. The Jewish nation is weak and the Romans are ruling us and it's like a police state. Or he could have looked at the religious leaders down here and said, look at the corruption of our religion. I can't possibly believe in God because the rulers are corrupt. The Pharisees, you Pharisees and scribes, are self-righteous hypocrites. You've changed the Bible. You've corrupted all of us. Or could have said, I didn't get any religious training. The nation's dead. The nation was divided. God stopped speaking. Nothing happened until Jesus came along. I haven't had a moral compass to work off of. I've never met this man before. I wish I had met him three years before, but I'm living in jail. And now he looks at Jesus. And his initial reaction is not faith. In fact, if you look at the parallel text of Matthew and Mark, It says that both the criminals insulted him. Initially, the thief 
who testifies for Jesus says, oh, you're a fake, you're a fraud, and he mocks like the other thief. But then something happens, and in verse 40, something clicks. And all of a sudden, he understands what's going on. He watches Jesus, who's suffering without a word of complaint, and he hears his fellow criminal criticizing and saying, I get an entitlement out of this. And he sees the religious leaders in their self-serving hypocrisy, and he sees the Roman soldiers disrespecting him, and the crowd just watching, not saying a word. And he says, this isn't right. This man is different. And all of a sudden, the truth of what's happening becomes crystal clear to him. He had never heard Jesus teach. We can't find any evidence of that. He had never seen him do a miracle. All he knew was what he saw. And yet somehow the Spirit of God says to him, the words of Jesus, I've come to seek and to save that which is lost. I've come to lay down my life. I've come to do the will of the Father who sent me. I've come to give my life as a ransom for sin. In that moment, the thief understood the cross. He understood what Jesus had come to do, that he had come to be the substitutionary sacrifice for sin, for the sin of every single person who's ever lived, for you and for me. That he was the spotless lamb who was paying the penalty and the price of sin by his blood, that he was satisfying the holy justice of God because none of us can tonight. And he understood that death was not the end, that Jesus had the power and the, and the authority to overcome sin and overcome death. How do I know that? I know that because he says, Jesus, when you get to heaven this afternoon, you remember me. What, what a... What a Hearken back to the words of the communion table. Jesus says, when you do this, remember me. And the thief says, when you get to heaven, remember me. Remember what I am saying today. I'm declaring my faith in that. I'm declaring my confidence in that. And he believes Jesus will rise again. Nobody else did. The disciples didn't. The women didn't, Thomas didn't, the priests didn't, the crowds didn't, but the thief did. He knew that Jesus would rise from the grave and defeat sin and death forever. And he knew that when we trust in the Lord, that God can and will forgive us forever. They say, well, he waited till the last moment. I've got time. No, you don't. You have no idea what will happen tonight. You don't control the next 10 minutes of your life any more than I do. So we can't just wait till the last minute. He looks at Jesus and he makes an eternal decision. Look back at the text one more time. We're going to pray. Look at verse 41. Verses 41 and 42, he gives his last will and testament. The last act of the thief's will was to trust in Jesus Christ to save him and to surrender his life to Christ. He believed that Jesus would forgive him. He had just heard Jesus ask the Father to forgive the executioners. So he says, there's only one that can forgive me, and it's him. He doesn't have any selfish or ulterior motive. He doesn't say, okay, now that I've believed, get me down. He knows he's going to die. He knows that life is eternal. And he says, remember me. Now that's an interesting commitment of faith. 
is someone who is disfigured and bloodied and being mocked and being jabbed and is wearing a crown of thorns and is hanging in a cross. But it's the decision that he makes to trust in Jesus and Jesus alone as the author of salvation. That was the last act of his will. Look at the last act of his testimony. He says before everybody, Jesus, remember me. The Bible says in Romans 10, 9, that if we believe in our mouth and confess with our, excuse me, believe in our hearts and confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, that we will be saved. It didn't matter to him what anybody else said. It didn't matter what the other thief said. It didn't matter what the religious ruler said. It didn't matter what the soldier said. It only mattered what he knew. And he rejects what self says and he trusts in Jesus. One more thing. Look at Jesus' willingness to forgive. He could have said, sorry, pal, it's too late. I, I, you know what? You had all your life. I don't care the reasons that you had. You had all your life. I'm not going to do it. You're right. You do deserve this. You deserve to be on this cross. I don't. But I'm sorry. I'm bearing the weight of every sin that's ever been committed. We saw in our study Tuesday night that it's as high as the heavens, the pile of sins that were put on him. Jesus could have said, do you understand what I'm dying right now? And, and you know what? No. But he doesn't. Look at it. He says, I'll forgive you. Even on the cross, Jesus proves his love. That God is willing to forgive anyone, anytime, anywhere. And if that's you tonight and you're sitting here and you came with a friend or a family member, you just wandered in and you've never understood that, I pray tonight you do. Christ died on the cross for you and he died on the cross for me because we can't save ourselves. And in a little advanced picture of Sunday morning, he didn't stay in the grave. He rose again. And because he rose again, he defeated sin and death and hell forever. If you believe in your heart, you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you'll be saved. Don't leave tonight without doing that. Don't leave tonight without doing that. If you want to talk to me, Randy, one of our deacons, one of our prayer band, they'll be up here after the service. Just come up and ask us. We'll be glad to sit and explain it to you. We're going to have a reception. You can go and have some snacks afterwards. But let's talk to you about where you're headed for eternity. Don't take the chance. Don't, don't think it'll be enough. God will take me. The thief knew. It's only through you. Let's close our eyes. Father, we thank you tonight for your salvation, for the work of Christ. We don't deserve it. Not for a minute. And yet, Lord, as we've heard tonight all throughout this time together, your grace is sufficient. And the death and sacrifice of Christ for our sins was the payment that we needed because we couldn't do it ourselves. We came up void and Christ stepped in and took the cross for us. We thank you tonight that he is living, that there's no grave, there's no marker, there's nowhere we can visit and remember, oh, this is where Jesus died and there's his body. He's alive tonight. And we praise you and celebrate that. 
knowing your goodness. Lord, if there's someone here tonight that does not know you, that came in tonight standing apart from you, but now wants to draw close to you and receive your salvation, I pray right now in their hearts, they would pray, God, save me. Save me. I confess my sin. I confess myself. Save me. And Lord, I pray we'd have the joy tonight of bringing people into the kingdom because of your grace. We thank you and praise you, and we love you so much. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.